0: To the Green Majority on C I U T eighty nine point five FM, or on one of our loved radio syndicate partners, or on the Green Majority podcast. I am David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter. How are you doing? And we will be joined later by Tim Nash. Hurricane Isaias is the earliest ninth named storm ever recorded in the Atlantic, and according to Democracy Now quote. 2020's hurricane season is on pace to break the previous record set in 2005. The UK will soon reach temperatures hotter than the Caribbean, with heat records being just recently set in the UK, France, Spain, and Italy, with temperatures in some places reaching 40 degrees Celsius. The heat is set to cause thunderstorms across the continent and is already causing forest fires in France. A major heat wave recently hit the Middle East and broke the heat record in Baghdad. Many people have died, and close to 5 million people have been displaced in Bangladesh from monsoon rains. A major wildfire that has been burning for months in Argentina is completely out of control, covering the streets of Rosario in ash and filling people's homes with smoke. Ecologist Laura Prawl told Uki Goni regarding the fires for The Guardian, quote, The real problem is that 2020 has been one of the driest of recent years, which causes two problems. First, without proper humidity, the dead grass becomes highly flammable, and second, the low level of the river dries out the canals that usually act as buffers that stop the fire from expanding beyond individual islands. A new study published in Nature surprised its own researchers by shedding light on the prevalence of not microplastics but nanoplastics and that some of these nanoplastics are being produced by small crustaceans who are breaking down the larger microplastic pieces into microscopic shards of plastic small enough to pass through cell walls, thereby potentially entering whatever species they come across and doing God knows what to them. The same study also reads, quote, It is estimated that 99% of the global plastic waste entering the oceans goes missing, pointing towards gaps in knowledge regarding microplastic fate. The lack of knowledge of the environmental fate of plastics is therefore a major issue. And finally, people around the world have been receiving mysterious packages of seeds in the mail and in some cases, they have planted them.
1: Yeah, and it's almost certainly a bad idea to plant these mystery seeds. you know. But as the world stands today, I can certainly understand the people doing it. The big concern, of course, is that they're probably some sort of invasive species, or that they could be some sort of invasive species. And I guess we'll find out. And I imagine that the people planting them are doing so from like a could-2020-really-get-any-worse- type of place and for which the answer is unfortunately yes because I think the thing about climate change and really just environmental destruction more generally if you include you know biodiversity loss and microplastics which often goes misunderstood is that it's a multiplier it's going to make each crisis like a plant like a pandemic or economic uncertainty or an incredibly incompetent government that much worse it's not going to just wait for us to deal with these other issues and then show up right Which is why if we do not prioritize the basic human needs of people rather than trying to maximize the production uh, maximize production at the expense of resiliency is going to lead to the collapse after collapse where a crisis begets another crisis. And I think if this one thing as a theme for this show, uh, especially as we hear from Tim Nash, the, our sustainable economist at the end of the show, is that the stock market is not the economy and that the economy is not real life. You know, climate change was making that obvious, but COVID has put a very, very fine point on it. And we're being given a chance as to what to prioritize. And if that remains the Dow Jones, then we are going down.
0: I should uh, just tell you in some cases the seeds were planted by people who are already part of uh, like seed and garden groups. Ah, So they figure that these seeds that they're getting are just from those same people because they get seeds in the mail already. But these are mysterious seeds that have been sent to many different people. Mysterious seeds.
1: Well, you know, I guess we're all going to find out what these seeds are. We'll have to update the listeners.
0: Possibly some kind of glowing courgette. One
1: can only help
2: Interestingly, up, cake up. In the form of my elders I'm glowed up, glowed up. Bitch, don't I look like
0: a feral? Interestingly, and wonderfully, if not surprisingly, Roger Hallam of Extinction Rebellion has begun leaning on the mystical. This could have something to do with his oldness. But anyway, he is now arguing, like Chris Hedges, that the climate movement will need a madly dogged persistence that embraces hopelessness and fights for an ecologically-minded economic transformation, not because uh, there is any hope of winning, but because it is simply the right thing to do. The fight therefore enters the prophetic sphere, rather than the rationalist, materialist, utilitarian stance of maximizing material good— since it is in fact this rational materialist position that is constraining the movement. People do not want to risk their careers and relative wealth to do what is necessary to save the species. The American philosopher Rick Roderick in a lecture on Herbert Marcuse illustrates in this connection how irrational outcomes emerge from individual rational choices. For instance, everyone wanting to get home from work as quick as possible causes a traffic jam. Or in our case, everyone wanting to live the most comfortable life through high consumption and fossil fuel use causes the collapse of the system that allowed for that comfort to begin with. Hallam's mystical proposition, therefore, as he thinks of it, is to act irrationally in order to achieve a rational outcome. We need to act irrationally on an individual level to give our species a chance to survive. Hallam begins by illustrating the catastrophic structure of the problem of climate change from a sociological point of view, arguing that climate change is universal, existential, exponential, and still relatively obscure, meaning we're not tasting it yet. It's already causing major problems, of course, but it hasn't hit our front doors in the way that it will sometime in the near future, and even when it does start killing huge numbers of people, it will start in the global south, giving us northern countries more time to deny its reality as it comes closer and closer to our ivory towers. In our current political system, we tend to herd towards the center of any given issue, and our information systems, our news cycles and so forth, tend to downplay things that seem removed from us. But the climate crisis is such that the bottom could drop out suddenly, Even though human extinction is a real potential, we don't discuss it or think about it seriously in the mainstream. We will follow the herd off a cliff. So Hallam's thesis is that we need to be extremely radical in order to maximize the possibility of any semi-organized society surviving past the next several decades. This is because we do not, as a species, tend to make very rational assessments of how bad something is if it isn't directly in front of us and yet we live in a state of radical vulnerability, living as we do on a tiny sliver of topsoil and a couple hundred meters of air. Uh, So the earth is huge, but the part we need for agriculture is actually very small. There is also such a thing as a temperature survivability threshold, past which people will die no matter how healthy they are. This is the wet bulb temperature, or heat-humidity index, we've discussed before, which, once warming reaches a certain point, could cause huge numbers of people to drop dead in a very short period of time. Hallam goes on to argue that Extinction Rebellion has become less radical as more people have joined it and has anchored itself in a position that, if maintained, would still lead to the extinction of the human race. The organization, or whatever activist effort, has to maintain its footing in the spot that science says is necessarily radical enough to properly change our society in the short time we have left the organization's structural problem in this regard is that the movement has become is that as the movement has become popular it has attracted liberals and become conventional and acquired institutional inertia by which people within the movement don't want to become radical enough because no one else is in addition making the movement as big as possible through alliances between different groups is not sufficient for structural change societal structural change because the problem isn't directly in our faces the way a brutal dictatorship would be. In other words, you cannot just tell people the truth about a crisis in the future. There has to be a strategy for maintaining the centrality and salience of the truth. Revolutions, however, tend to come out of nowhere, because societal change tends to happen suddenly, even if it's been building for some time. The kind of crisis that historically forces revolution and reorganization like the state running out of money or people running out of food, is now inevitable, since we've been ignoring the science for so long and have already locked ourselves into a certain amount of global heating. The argument is that the possibility of a clean and steady transition to a sustainable economy is already out the window, given the type of warming we're already locked into. Furthermore, if we take Russia as an example in 1917 as well as in 1989, it was those who had stayed consistently radical, who had previously been on the margins of political life and who appeared to have the least chance of gaining power, who ultimately triumphed politically once the crisis actually hit. So when an ecological crisis of sufficient intensity hits our society, we can bet that it will be the radicals who will ultimately gain power. That is, whoever is able to fix the economy quick enough to maintain a relatively stable societal organization. And it isn't guaranteed that these people will be democratic. They could easily be eco-fascists. So the question becomes, Hallam argues, how the democratic leftists in the climate movement can remain radical enough that is in line with the radical truth of climate science in order to gain legitimate power when the crisis hits. To do this, either a leader has to emerge to maintain the radical position no matter what, Or the upper working class and the lower middle class uh, have to join the fight. And these are the revolutionary classes anyway, since they have enough free time to learn about what's happening and are facing the brunt of the problem. Or democratic deliberation can be used to radicalize people through free communication. The climate crisis is the kind of truth that inherently radicalizes people because of how absurd our consumer-driven society seems in the face of it. Citizens' Assemblies, for example, are groups of regular people that, insulated from the larger society and given access to scientific truths and expert opinions, tend to form much more radical positions than people influenced mainly by social media and the news cycle. This happened just recently in France, for instance, when the Citizens' Assembly on Climate Change convinced the government to commit $17 billion to the cause. We had an in-depth discussion about citizens' assemblies last year on this show, which you can find on our website. In any case, Hallam sums up his presentation by arguing for a shift in the climate movement towards what he called a prophetic orientation that recognizes the material world as just one potential construction. The material world, in other words, is not the entire world. There is much else besides. And this orientation, which, from a personal perspective, loses interest in the fate of the individual body, is able to move beyond the confines of petty self-interest towards a grander effort that is radical and fearless enough to embody the solution we need. It is a position in which one has lost all hope for oneself, since death is inevitable and our careers are doomed in the face of ecological collapse, and they didn't matter anyway, that is then paradoxically able to energize the resistance that will bring about the survival of the species and maybe even the survival of organized society in perpetuity. The position approaches the mystical, according to Hallam, since it's motivated by something beyond rational self-interest. As Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said during her congressional campaign, if she were a rational person, she would have dropped out of the race long before her victory.
1: So a couple quick thoughts. The first is this is actually a super interesting contrast, I think with the interview that comes, comes later because there are sort of two ways to try to solve a problem. Right, you you either look where you are and project forward and try to imagine, you know, the steps you need to take to get to where you need to be, or you choose to where you need to be and and work back. And I feel like the the work that sort of Tim uh, and and others work on the same economy kind of stuff focus on is. Is the is the from now forward steps, whereas Hallam here is cl- very clearly sort of taking a where do we need to be by what time, and then what then working backwards as to what you actually might have to do to get there, which you know comes to very different conclusions in, in some ways. Although I'm not entirely sure I would necessarily buy the concept that what he's advocating for is a lack of rationality, because you know rationality is built by in the world we live in. and so a new world would create new uh, new rationality. And so while I certainly understand the concept of you know you you have to give up a lot in some of these actions to to lose uh, to to be able to get where you need to be and to, to push forward and, and to sort of demand the the world we need. You know, as you've mentioned in in these in these revolutionary moments, those who with, with who stood true to those values ended up coming out on top. And if that's not the rational position, then how is that not where we're going?
0: Well, like Vladimir Lenin didn't really come out on top in the end, nor, right. did, nor did Trotsky.
1: All right. Well, fine. The, the Russian is maybe not is maybe not perfect for well many, many reasons. But, but I still think there's a point here to be made that, you know, when you think about other, even other ways of life and, either, and even other, you know, value systems, the, that the, the, those value systems create a rationality that would be very in line with some of the stuff that I'm sure Hallam would support, you know. And so when you're bringing in an anti-colonial lens, for example, uh, that response in in uh, rationality within those lenses i think are much more welcoming to a response that may see significant decreases in say the stock market or something you know and you'll hear in the in the interview with with tim later on that, that the stocks and stock prices are largely due to the quote-unquote confidence in the returns over the long term and so the reason we haven't seen a decrease in stocks is in part because of this because of the fact that Investors remain confident that 30 years from now, you know, the the Netflixes of the world will remain making money, which you know, when you listen to Hallam and you listen to climate science, these investors clearly have not exactly reckoned with climate change to the extent necessary. And ultimately, what we will experience over the coming years, I think, will be this push and pull for this reckoning.
2: the
0: The province of Alberta is changing its rules for oil and gas wells to avoid orphaning too many of them in the future. The Edmonton Journal reports that it's the first time in decades these rules have been overhauled which makes sense given that the province already has 91,000 inactive wells and 73,000 abandoned ones. Companies, under the new rules, will be forced to spend a certain amount each year to help clean up various inactive structures and will be financially assessed before they're allowed to build new wells. There will also be a new process for landowners to get stuff cleaned up on their land. All this stuff, however, has been, as Alberta NDP environment critic Marlin Schmidt said, short on specifics.
1: The devil is in the details, and nothing that the UCP has done has given them much credibility for their work. You know, even, and I, I would have to read more about this, but up until this point, oil companies were supposed to be paying into a, you know, a, a fund that was going to clean up these wells in the first place. And these these the abandoned ones, at least the inactive ones, are still actually on the books of, of the other groups, as we discussed in our previous interview uh, with uh, Julie Levin of Environmental Defense. And so, I'm not entirely certain how much stronger these are, and and until they sort of come out with specifics, I'm not holding my breath. But these, this is going to be a huge issue. The, the um, amount of money necessary to clean up these wells effectively, and the amount of money that these oil companies have left uh, on, uh, on the public purse, whether or not it's Alberta's expectation to clean up these wells, or the their failure to pay you know, more local taxes to to cities and, and counties in the areas, is, is, is with well within the millions, if not in the billions of dollars. And so we, ha- this level of scrutiny has to step up. And, you know, if this does something great, but again, the UCP is not someone you should trust when it comes to regulation of Alberta's oil economy.
0: The massive Vista coal mine expansion, which we discussed in depth two episodes ago, is now officially subject to a federal review after Environment Minister uh, Jonathan Wilkinson, federal environment minister, recently changed his mind because it seems like the company filed two separate applications for what is essentially the same expansion in order to avoid the federal assessment. Wilkinson's statement reads, quote, "...considered together, the area of mining operations for the projects would be just below the 50% threshold and at 18,683 tons per day, well above the coal production capacity threshold of 5,000 tons per day described on item 19A of the Physical Activities Regulations." The minister considered his previous decision regarding the Vista Coal Mine Phase Expansion Project, the new information regarding plans for further expansion of the Vista Coal Mine Phase Project, the Vista Coal Underground Mine, and additional indigenous and public concerns received regarding the projects. The minister acknowledges that, cumulatively, the projects may result in adverse effects of greater magnitude to those previously considered.
1: Yeah. This is 100% the federal government feeling the push of civil society. So for anyone who sort of brought this to the forefront and pushed for it, congratulations. This is a win and it should be understood as a win. However, it is one of those wins that should not have been necessary in the first place. You know, Canada should not be in the game of coal while pretending to take climate seriously. You know, obviously, the purchase of the Trans Mountain pipeline had has had similar impacts uh, and similar implications as to the two-sided, uh, the, the, the sort of speaking out of two mouths that we're currently experiencing from the federal government in the first place. But still, th- this. This mine, in the face of everything, and still mining coal in the face of everything, when we're seeing more and more of Canada try to actually phase out coal plants altogether, as Ontario already has done quite quite some time ago, is in another example of just how much, you know, we're still trying to make we're trying to get as much money out of pulling out of out of pulling you know, their natural resources out of the ground before the economics, you know, shuts us out. And that is unethical, uh, let alone bad economics, you know, given how quickly everyone is shifting away from this.
0: And finally, the major French oil and gas company Total is pulling out of the oil sands, as well as the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. The company has written off its $9.3 billion stake in Albertan oil and labeled its investments stranded assets since it considers high-cost oil reserves set to produce 20 years from now uh, to be no longer viable. It has also said that the Canadian oil lobby's public positions no longer align with Total's climate ambition statement. Total's statement reads in part, Total is committed to helping solve the dual challenge of providing more energy with fewer emissions. We are determined to advance the energy transition while also growing shareholder value. Today, we are announcing our climate ambition to get to net zero by 2050, together with society.
1: So many parts of that statement make me mad, (laughs) let alone the, quote, while also growing shareholder value. This is the problem. You know, the... Oil industry and the fossil industry and the economy itself is so beholden to quote unquote shareholder value that it is in absolutely no way committed to taking societal needs seriously. And we, you know, we'll come. We've been promising this, and I think it may be next week or as soon as we get Lauren to come back on the show.
0: Definitely next week.
1: Definitely next week to talk about the, the part of the problems with the concept of net zero, and especially, especially when fossil fuel companies start pretending that that's what they're going for. The only way a fossil fuel company can go to net zero in a way that should be listened to is by stopping pulling any oil out of the ground. And so far, none of them have committed to that piece, and so none of them should be taken seriously. With that said... You know, we're about to go to the interview with Tim Nash, and in it he speaks about the many concerns that he has about Canadian investors being stuck holding the losses that will come from this popping or deflating, however you want to call it, of the the carbon bubble. And Total is not a... You know, it's 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 not a university pension fund. It's not which which themselves are failing to divest. This is an oil company which itself is admitting that 9.3 billion dollars of its oil assets are stranded because that they because they're not aligned with their ability uh, to to produce oil over the next 20 30 years. And so this is this is this is this is writing on the wall. As as dark and as clear as it possibly can be, the, the that oil companies, especially ones that are not based in Canada, especially ones that are not being pushed by you know the Alberta by, by Alberta or the Canadian federal government, have realized that they are not going to keep making money from this place, and so we have to find a way out and to find a way forward, which you know we'll talk about again in a, in a few short minutes with my interview with Tim Nash.
0: Spent your whole life out in the spotlight
1: But some had to pull you back to the starlight Cause even when you're all out there in the sun You're still in the hands of the one who cares for you And it's the whole game that you play on But some had to pull you back where you came from Cause even when you're all out there in the sun You're still in the hands of the one who cares for you Welcome back to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our wonderful radio syndicates across the country, or maybe on the podcast, which you've found at greenmajority.ca. We are here uh, with longtime friend of the show, to my understanding, reigning champion for most times as a guest on the show, uh, our sustainable economist, uh, Tim Nash. Welcome.
2: Thank you so, ha- so much for having me back on the show.
1: Uh, so let's let's jump in. We've, we, we, the, the, we've covered uh, some environmental uh, and economic stories earlier on the show. And so it makes sense to have your sort of uh, perspective at this moment. And, you know, we haven't had you on for a while. And some things have happened since you were last been on. Uh, you know, the whole COVID <laughs> thing occurred. So I'm wondering if you can just start us off with, with sort of an overwhelming, an overall uh, picture of, of what's happening with, with the economy right now?
2: Sure. So uh, definitely 2020 has been an eventful year. This is one that we're all going to remember. I have no doubt about it that this will have a very prominent place in the history books. And uh, we're not done with it yet. So, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what what happens for the rest of the year. But uh, so far, obviously, the, the economy was doing really well. Stock market was doing really well the first two months, January, February, You know, really everything was going as planned uh, uh, with very steady sort of economic growth. And then COVID hit and people panicked. And, you know, really it was very, very scary. There was sort of one week in particular from about, about March 10th until about March 17th, where it was just a really, really scary moment where not only were we seeing the stock market absolutely collapsed, but we also saw a major fall in the bond market. And that was a very scary moment for me as an economist because stocks and bonds are sort of supposed to move in opposite directions. So when there's a crash, you know, bonds are actually supposed to go up in value a little bit. So to have this week where all of a sudden stocks were going down, people were panicking, pulling their money out of the stock market. But the bond market, which is normally the safe haven, was not a safe haven during that week. It was really scary um you know when we were talking about the potential for a depression like it was really that bad now uh the governments and the central banks moved in very quickly they moved a lot faster than they did in 2008 2009 and right around march 17th they provided stimulus and support now a little bit concerned with the central banks that maybe they went too far you know, rather than just sort of printing money, which is, you know, this idea of, of kind of a quantitative easing and the way they did it in 2008, 2009, uh, they actually started buying corporate bonds on the market. And what that did is really provided uh, a support level for those bonds so that companies weren't going to go bankrupt and weren't going to, you know, watch their bonds fall to pieces as well. So really provided a lot of support for the economy. But, you know, there are definitely some long-term implications. We do not know what those full implications are going to be. So there are some concerns there. But really, they moved swiftly and sort of with authority and, uh, and really kind of swooped in. And I would say kind of rescued things, that it was looking pretty bleak there in March. And then once that government support uh, uh, kicked in, that's when, you know, really we started to see the market stabilize and start to bounce back. Now, what's been really interesting is that in the bounce back, the stock market really has bounced back. That as we're uh, looking at it, as I'm looking at it today, the broad stock market is basically back to where it was at the start of the year. So we saw like a 30% crash and then pretty much a bounce back right back up to where it was. Unfortunately, the economy, the real economy is still in dire straits that we saw the gdp figures come out last week that were very bad everyone knew they were going to be bad but these were really bad that we are you know definitely in a, a pretty severe recession right now unemployment numbers are really high and yet you know there is this idea that cerb is going to be ending that you know in the us there's a lot of politics that they might not get their next round of stimulus checks that you know, all of these mortgage deferrals that happened, you know we kind of kicked the can six months down the road. Well, guess what? It's almost been six months. So are we gonna kick it a little further down the can? We don't know. And that really this, uh, uh, this pandemic has further separated the rich and the poor, that people are really experiencing the pandemic di- differently, that if you're wealthy and you've got money and you've got a nice blue collar job that you can do from your home office, Right, and you've got money in the stock market that bounced right back up, then you're sitting pretty. You're probably not spending as much money as you were before. I mean, there's not much to do. So you're probably saving more money and have more money to save and invest than you did before. But if you were struggling before, you know, if you had a low-income job, if you were you know, on EI or you know, really kind of struggling before the pandemic, you are definitely struggling now. There's no way that things have improved for you You know, that maybe you did receive, you know, a little bit of a a cushion or like a a time buffer over the last few months with the government support. But now that we know CERB is coming to an end, I can only imagine the stress that so many families are feeling right now. Uh, Food banks are demand is at an all time high. And really, I would say there's just been this massive bifurcation you know that whatever gap was uh, we had in terms of inequality between the rich and the and the poor before is now an absolute chasm um, that again you know it'll just be very interesting to see how this all plays out over the next few months
1: yeah and I, I, you make an interesting point there to almost compare comparing the the fact that we've seen the stock market bounce back uh, and yet the real economy not is is actually highlight is highlighted or highlights that exact distinction that you just made between those people who are you know i think 30 million americans are currently facing the p- potential of losing their housing and yet you know jeff bezos has made 42 an extra like 42 billion dollars or whatever that number was you know that's right and and was it and so i i guess what is interesting is the stock market my understanding is was supposed to at least in some way be connected to the economy and it seems as if that that difference has become either maybe was never there but it seems to have completely broken and and like are we expecting that to eventually come back or or like what's going on
2: sure so there are really there are a couple different reasons why the stock market has bounced back as much as it has while, you know, a lot of the the, the the lagging indicators, things like unemployment and GDP, just simply have not. So remember that the stock market is a leading indicator, meaning that it is trying to predict the future. So a stock price today is really of a, a reflection of the estimated profits over the next 20 to 30 years And then kind of, you know, you discount them backwards into what's called the net present value to say how much that company is worth right now. So, you know, if this is a bit of a blip in history where, you know, we get a vaccine and everything goes back to normal and this really was, you know, 2020, that strange year, you know, but then everything came right back then, you know, it makes sense that, you know, the stock market wouldn't be down very much, that really, if we take a long-term view on this over the next 20 years, you know, how much is COVID really impacting things? Um, As well, really, it is that government and that central bank support stepping in and really propping up the stock market, frankly. You know, when I look at how much money uh, from these stimulus programs, um, and the quantitative easing that has gone into providing liquidity to the, the, the markets versus how much has actually ended up in the pockets of regular citizens. You know, it's shocking. Like 2008, 2009, I referred to the, the, the packages there as sort of the biggest gift to the world's wealthiest in the history of the world. And this has now eclipsed that. You know and here they are able to the central bank is buying these corporate bonds is buying corporate debt you know how come they're not buying student debt or in the u.s how come they're not buying healthcare debt it strikes me that those things would be much more valuable to the real economy so again this is you know really by providing sort of confidence into the financial markets you know really that's going into the pocket of the wealthiest people who in fact have, you know, and own the majority of those investments. Um, And it's not going to the people who I think actually drive the real economy, i.e. consumers. So that's why, you know, I am really worried about some of the knock-on effects, some of sort of the domino effects that we're starting to see happen as it relates to commercial real estate where, you know, businesses are going bankrupt and, you know, all the impacts that that is going to have of unemployment. You know when CERB runs out what are people gonna do how are they gonna get by you know what's gonna happen to their spending this is money you know that most people would get that CERB check and spend it right away on rent and food and utilities and all these wonderful things they don't have that money they don't have money to spend you know that's that's gonna ultimately hurt the economy so you know really and the other thing to remember is that the stock market is all about confidence so it's not really a measure of the real economy it's more a measure of sort of the confidence of the wealthiest people mm. and that confidence is really starting to manifest itself in funny ways obviously tech has done phenomenally well during covid and the largest tech companies have just absolutely become that much bigger and you know it's been really interesting following a company like tesla where you know their stock price has just jumped up so high that it's really hard to imagine, you know, that, that even the profits over the next 10, 20, 30 years, how that could justify the share prices. But hey, like if you own shares of Tesla going into this uh, uh, um, uh, pandemic, you know, you're really happy right now. You are absolutely sitting pretty that there's no doubt that there are a lot of people in the world that are feeling very confident or sort of bullish on the market. You know, despite everything that's going on.
1: Yeah, that's it's it's consistently a, a, a important reminder of how much that the these these stocks don't actually represent uh, so much of what the daily the daily experience is, especially. And and I think this, if anything, has made it more obvious. It is it has been this experience in the last last six months. I, I have a small question as to what you would, which is sort of I'm not a part of the questions I was expecting to ask, but I'm a little curious about your position about uh, what you would, what it would take in the real economy to sort of burst the bubble of confidence that exists right now in the, in the, in the stock economy.
2: Yeah. I mean, and again, with all the government and the Fed support, you know, a lot of investors are acting as if there is no risk. Mm. Uh, That said, obviously there's risk. And again, it's more a measure of confidence. So we went from greed in all of last year and like January or February, it was greed to abject fear in March where everyone was so afraid. Like you remember that, right? When we had yeah. to shut down and yeah. we went into lockdown for the first time, like that was fear and borderline panic, the way people were buying toilet paper. <laughs> and that now we've kind of gone back to greed. Mm that because of Fed support and because of of all these things, and there are a lot of people that started actually investing for the first time. You know, it was really interesting. Something I've been following is that a lot of gamblers turned to the stock market that casinos closed and there were no sports to bet on. So a lot of these like sports gamblers got online trading accounts and started buying and they bought, they started buying when everything was going up. Right. So they've only been in this up market. So they think it's the easiest way to make money right so you know again a lot of greed and and frankly a lot of hubris like there is overconfidence, and so you know the major risks that i'm seeing right now that would affect the stock market so number one would be a second shutdown in the u.s that obviously a lot of states are moving in the wrong direction there that you know a lot of the stories i'm seeing and so much of this is tied to schools reopening in september that if we don't get that right and if it's a problem and if we see a surge in cases and the economy has to shut down again. Obviously, people are going to lose a lot of confidence. Um, and that number two is the political risk. Now, you know, six months ago, we would have talked the political risk was well, what if Bernie Sanders gets the nomination? Obviously, he didn't. You know, it is going to be Biden versus Trump. Now, between those two candidates, the stock market, you know, would probably prefer Trump for, you know, maybe more tax cuts and things like that. That said, they might actually like the stability of Biden and in terms of globalism and, you know, some of those aspects. But really the risk we have right now is that it is an election that is like sort of too close to call where, you know, the division in the U.S. is so uh, uh, sharp right now. And, you know, we saw with a lot of the protests, how, you know, social unrest in the U S where if, if it is, could you imagine, you know, like when it was Gore versus, uh, 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 George W Bush and it came down to those hanging chads in Florida. If we had that scenario now, you know, do you think either one of them are actually gonna like, you know, be the bigger man like Al Gore was and say, you know, be, be a respectful loser, like no chance. And that even if we do have a, a, a seemingly legitimate result, you know, with these mail-in ballots and everything, like, we don't know if there is going to be a peaceful transfer of power. So, you know, that would be the political risk. Obviously, that would send people back into fear and I think would likely cause a major decline in the stock market. Right, right.
1: And, and, and funny, like, that also would just ha- like, I can there are some problems where you where I get to where it's like, then we have 7,000 problems. Like the stock market may become the least of our worries. You know, who controls
2: their nuclear weapons might end up being more important. Um, right. Can but, we just get through 2020? Yeah, I, let's, let's just get, yeah, I just really am going to celebrate New Year's. I'm not normally someone that celebrates <laughs> New Year's, but I tell you this year, I'm going to party. Oh yeah, yeah. We're all going to need it
1: desperately. Um, Absolutely. So to, so to shift over to, to sort of your expertise, uh, which is which is environmental investing and investing with a sustainable lens. Uh, what has this whole rigmarole meant uh, for green stocks and bonds and in, in in sort of in sustainable investing side of things?
2: Yeah, so green, green stocks have just been doing so well that they've just bounced back in a really meaningful way. Uh, the, at the top of the list are gonna be the electric car companies. So Tesla, there's a Chinese company called NIO, NIO that has also done very, very well. During this period, like we're just talking, you know, two hundred percent, three hundred percent gains, like just fairly absurd growth. Again, I don't know if that's sustainable. I'll be perfectly honest with you, but hey, I'll take it, right? <laughs> you know, uh, from there, you know, really green sectors have been performing really well, and I think there is a desire, understanding that that whereas in two thousand eight, two thousand nine when the market crash happened, and I was talking about sustainable investing and green investing and you know, all this fun stuff, I would say all those issues really got put on the back burner, that everyone was like, no, we've got you know, more important things to deal with during this economic crisis. Whereas now, what I would say is that actually a lot of these sort of green themes and sustainable investing broadly is now actually on the front burner, that people are really reevaluating a lot of their investment strategies. We've seen oil continue to just fall and just be have horrible investment returns. You know, companies are, are, are cutting their losses on a lot of these projects. We're sort of watching the carbon bubble deflate in real time. And that really, I think people are looking for the story of what's next. And I think that the green sectors really kind of fill that narrative. That uh, uh, I'm hearing a lot of this term sort of let's build back better that there's an opportunity for these green new deals. Uh, So in Europe, they just passed a 500 billion euro green stimulus package, which is just massive, the largest green stimulus package ever in the history of the world. And Joe Biden announced a $2 trillion, you know, effectively a green new deal. They're not gonna call it that because I think for political reasons, that that's considered you know a little too out there, or wacky or whatever. But I mean, hey, two trillion dollars for for green sectors over four years, um, you know, very very ambitious there. So I think uh, there really is a lot of optimism when it comes to these green sectors, understanding that that you know we've seen technology really emerge as the biggest winner. In uh, 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 in the pandemic, and I think it's very f- safe to say that clean technologies are really well positioned to be able to continue to emerge. Um, you know, as the pandemic drags on, and then ultimately as we emerge post-pandemic.
1: So uh, let's dive in a little deeper into these the stimulus packages and and how you expect them to because you know. They're so huge that the idea, you know, that they can build green, but like $2 trillion is so much money. Like, where are they going and how do you expect it to impact, you know, what sectors within sort of quote unquote green economy do you expect to see growth and, and where and how do you expect this all to play out?
2: It's, it's going to be really tricky. There's a lot we don't know. Hmm. Um, what is clear is that everything is jobs focused. So that really, you know, I think Biden came out with this language and he was like, when Donald Trump hears the word climate change, he thinks hoax. When I hear the word climate change, I think about jobs, that this is really how they're positioning it. And this is why I call it a Green New Deal, because it does seem to be very jobs focused. So I think that you are going to see a lot into electric cars. I think that electric cars, I don't think it's the best use of money and the most efficient way to cut CO2 and, you know, all these problems with gridlock. And, you know, I have a lot of issues with electric cars, but hey, you know, when it comes to jobs, you know, car manufacturing is something that the U.S. knows very well how to do. So, you know, if everyone has to buy a new car and like as that whole all of these fleets turn over into electric vehicles, that's going to be a lot of jobs. As well, I expect a lot of it to go into energy efficiency. Uh, retrofits upgrades you know construction development that that, that's gonna be a lot of jobs you know when I've looked at some of the figures of jobs per you know million dollar spent or billion dollar spent you know energy efficiency is always way at the top of that so you know it's been really interesting to see uh, uh, what is it uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac which are the big sort of uh, US uh, real estate like residential real estate lenders Uh, They're some of the biggest issuers of green bonds globally Hmm. uh, To be able to actually provide these mortgages so that people can renovate and retrofit their homes to make them more efficient Um, So, you know, that's those are the two sectors that I would sort of put at the top of the list You know from there really with these numbers it is so big that you know, it's something that that really I can see a very wide net when it comes to clean technologies that would benefit from these programs Um, But ultimately, you know, we are going to have to see sort of how the cards fall. Uh, In the U.S., certainly, I would say things are are moving in those directions. Uh, With the U.S., we have a long way to go to get through this election before I think we're ready to actually, like, you know, start counting those chickens.
1: (laughs) Yeah. If anything, 2016 has taught us is do not count chickens. Um, So, but leading into this conversation, you had sent me an an, an article uh, from Morningstar talking about the ESG market and just the unbelievable growth we've seen there. So you can explain both what ESG means, what it is, and and what the story is here.
2: Sure. So, you know, really this to me is the biggest bright spot right now that I do want to give your listeners some optimism in terms of what's going on uh, on the investment side. So uh, ESG is an acronym that stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. This is industry speak for sustainability. So all these companies have these ESG scores, essentially their sustainability scores, and that for a long time, I've been kind of banging on this drum that, hey, let's look at these environmental, social, governance risk factors and include that those data points in addition to the financial data points when making uh, investment decisions. Now, when I started in this field, you know, 10, 12 years ago, almost nobody was doing this. People thought I was nuts. You know, it was really, really hard for me to even, you know, convince people that this was, you know, not uh, uh, an absurd thing to do. And very quickly, this is becoming the status quo. So over the last few years, or the last two years, really, we've seen a tremendous uptick. When it comes to assets under management, so money flowing in to these ESG ETFs, exchange traded funds, these are investment vehicles like mutual funds. but really these ESG ETFs, so these sustainable funds, you know for a long time they would only attract you know about a billion here, a billion there, like not a huge amount of money. And then all of a sudden, last year 2019, huge inflows. And part of it is that we started to see more products. So there was more supply, but then also that created more demand. This is sort of the chicken and the egg, right? Where now we've got both. And all of a sudden in 2019, we saw $20 billion flow into these ESG ETFs. That is a huge amount of money. You know, we're talking multiples of what was in there before all the other years combined. So far this year in 2020, we're already at $20 billion. So last year was like a breakout year and already in the midst of this massive, you know, stock market collapse and rebound, we've already seen the inflows that we saw in a banner year last year. That most of this is US investors, that they are now really catching on. It's incredible when I watch the the financial channels, you know, everyone's talking about this. This is major, ta- you know, it's really becoming mainstream in the US. And it's just sad to me that, you know, Canada kind of seems to be left behind. That when I watch the Canadian channels and the Canadian media, you know, it doesn't get picked up nearly the same way. That the Canadian funds don't, aren't seeing that nearly as many assets flowing into them. That, you know, I am really worried that Canada is gonna be left behind in all of this you know, that basically when Trump got elected, I remember, you know, I probably came on the show and said this, that, you know, this is Canada's chance, that we now have four years to be able to get ahead of the US on this issue. Let's, let's clean things up and let's, right, and let's, let's become a leader in the green economy. Um, and we've squandered those four years. I mean, we're still debating pipelines here. It's ridiculous like it's ridiculous and so now all of a sudden you know the probability of biden getting in and the u.s going full on towards a green economy that you know i'm really worried that our economy is going to be left behind and that our investors are going to be left holding the bag that canadian investors that were heavily invested in the tar sands in pipelines in banks you know that's where most canadians have their money in those three sectors you know if they didn't have any exposure to tech they've gotten absolutely walloped over the last little while. And that really, you know, I, I'm, I'm afraid that Canadian investors are going to be left holding the bag when a lot of these assets that have poor ESG scores. So they, you know, they, they don't score well when it comes to environmental, social, and governance risks that are very, very carbon intensive, that as these assets sort of turn toxic, that someone's going to be left holding the bag and i'm really worried it's going to be canadian investors. so you know the bright spot here is that the stock market is actually kind of leading the charge towards a sustainable economy there's actually a little fight right now with trump and you know his department of labor is trying to you know knock down these esg regulations and there's a huge pushback against that but you know if you're if you're upsetting trump then you're probably doing something right And that, you know, really the investment world is, I would say, taking a leadership position when it comes to transitioning us towards factoring in a lot of these sustainability issues. Um, And that really, you know, if we can get capital and, you know, we're really seeing that, that, that there's no money for fossil fuel projects anymore. No one wants to touch them. Meanwhile, any of these green bonds or any of these green investments, they're just swimming in cash right now that it's so easy for them to raise money right now that, you know, really to me, this is encouraging that I think that really uh, uh, we have an opportunity here that with this crisis that we can basically revamp the economic system and specifically the way the stock market is valuing companies and that I'm starting to see this tidal wave of ESG is definitely on its way.
1: Amazing. Uh, Thank you so much, Tim Nash. Uh, We'll have you back again soon, I'm sure. Uh, But for folks who want to learn more about you, where can they find you online?
2: Yeah, so um, my company is called Good Investing, so they can go to goodinvesting.com is probably the best place uh, uh, if you're curious about what I do to make money and how I help people invest according to their values. Um, And then really, you know, on a lot of the, the social media platforms, and I've actually started doing a YouTube show. So people can find me on YouTube if they search for Tim Nash or Sustainable Economist should find me pretty quick. And uh, I've been doing some YouTube live shows, just uh, keeping people on top of all of these wonderful changes that are taking place.
1: Amazing. Thank you so much, Tim, uh, and have a wonderful day. Cheers.